Jesus said to his followers, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We are in the presence of God. We commit ourselves to work in penitence and faith for reconciliation between the nations, that all people may, together, live in freedom, justice and peace. We pray for all who in bereavement, disability and pain continue to suffer the consequences of fighting and terror. We remember with thanksgiving and sorrow those whose lives in world wars and conflicts past and present have been given and taken away. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. Why do we remember? Sometimes it's hard for us to get into the feeling of what remembrance is about, particularly of my generation anyway. I think the generations before me and the generations after me, it's probably more real. But to help us do that this morning, we're going to hear some voices from people in the World War I, World War II, and after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to intersperse those readings with a Teze chant that speaks of the hope that God can give us in the darkest of places. So basically the choir will sing it through for us, then we will hear the first pair of readings, then it will be sung again, and so on. If you want to join in as you get used to the tune, that's fine. If you want to just sit and listen, that's fine too. Brigade, King's Royal Rifle Corps. Being 
as how we were in the Trust Lands Brigade, we were supposed to be very relig religious, but I don't know. I got hold of two souvenirs. One was a German belt, and it's got Gott mit uns on it, and that means God's with us. And I also got hold of one of our badges with Dieu et mon droit on it, and that more or less meant God's on my side. Well, both sides believe that, but it made you think. My name is Miss Kathleen Gibb. I was engaged to a dear boy who joined up when he was 18 and came through, as we thought at the time, without a scratch. He used to tell me about his life in the trenches. Some time after, my fiancée was taken ill, recovered, but the illness recurred and was diagnosed as consumption or tuberculosis. Then the doctors realised it was caused through being gassed twice during the conflict. It had eaten away one lung and was affecting the other. At that time, there was no cure for TB. He died after four years, just faded away. I was broken-hearted. He had no war pension, as it was too late to apply. When I think, I could have been a happy grandmother today if it hadn't been for that terrible war.
years in Japan after Nagasaki. Mikiko went down to Nagasaki after the bombing and stayed for a week, helping the injured in removing corpses at a distance of 2.5 kilometers from the epicenter. While engaged in first aid activities, she began to develop acute symptoms of diarrhea, which was followed over the years by the, more on, by the onset of more complex diseases that spread all over her body. A cranial tumour, liver trouble, nervous disorder and so on. Later she married and suffered eight miscarriages before being able to bear her first child, a son. She says, By no word can I describe the terrible sight of the dead and injured. I want everybody to understand that many are still suffering in this way, simply from the secondary radiation of the ravaged city. From Pope John Paul II. To remember the past is to commit oneself to the future. Let's promise our fellow human beings that we will. Replace violence and hate of confidence and caring. Peace must always be the aim. Peace pursued and protected in all circumstances. Let us embark upon the steep and difficult path of peace. Our first reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8. Everything that happens in this world happens at the time God chooses. He sets the time for birth and the time for death, the time for planting and the time for pulling up, the time for killing and the time for healing, the time for tearing down and the time for building. He sets the time for sorrow and the time for joy, the time for mourning and the time for dancing, the time for making love and the time for not making love, the time for kissing and the time for not kissing. He sets the time of finding and the time for losing, the time for saving and the time for throwing away, the time for tearing and the time for mending. The time for silence and the time for talk. He sets the time for love and the time for hate, the time for war and the time for peace. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. What I mean, brothers, is that what is made of flesh and blood cannot share in God's kingdom, and what is mortal cannot possess immortality. Listen to this secret truth. We shall not all die, but when the last trumpet sounds, we shall all be changed in an instant, as quickly as the blinking of an eye. 
For when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised, never to die again, and we shall all be changed. For what is mortal must be changed into what is immortal. What will die must be changed into what cannot die. So when this takes place and the mortal has been changed into the immortal, then the scripture will come true. Death is destroyed. Victory is complete. Where death is your victory? Where death is your power to hurt? Death gets its power to hurt us from sin and sin from its power from the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, my dear brothers, stand firm and steady. Keep busy always in your work for the Lord, since you know that nothing you do in the Lord's service is ever useless. And our third and final reading from John 14, first 12 verses. Do not be worried and upset, Jesus told them. Believe in God, and believe also in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house, and I am going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you myself, so that you will be where I am. You know the way that leads to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way to get there? Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, that is all we need. Jesus answered, For a long time I have been with you all, and yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said to his disciples, do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. I'm telling you the truth. Whoever believes in me will do what I do. Yes, I am going to the Father. He will do even greater things. And I will do whatever you ask for in my name so that the Father's glory will be shown through the Son if you ask me for anything in my name I will do it Amen I'd like to thank everybody who's taken part in those readings this morning and also our musicians the reading we heard from Ecclesiastes is very well known and well loved with its poetic expression of the rhythms of life, setting opposites in pairs that recognises the whole range of human experience.
But it's part of a book of the Bible that actually is pretty gloomy in tone. The writer often has this refrain of meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or in the older versions, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. It seems to me that there is a sense of resignation. That somehow this is just the way the world is and we can't change it. It's a kind of a book where you have to dig very deeply to find the hints of hope. And the glimpses of transformation, they are there, but they're not always obvious. So is it a given that there is a time for war and a time for peace? Or can that be changed? Or if I put it another way, is violence and death and devastation inevitable? Are we doomed to despair? Is this world just a veil of tears through which we must pass? Christian hope operates at many levels. And in his letter to the Thessalonians, so in the one to the church in Corinth, Paul speaks about hope beyond the grave, about life eternal. And it's important to remind ourselves of this, that beyond this life, however it pans out, there is something more to be experienced. But, as I said last week, and in fact we'll say again next week, Paul doesn't want his readers to become so focused on eternal bliss, whatever they think that might look like, that they become lazy or complacent in this life. The short reading that we heard from that letter included an important reminder that nothing we do in the Lord's service is ever wasted. That far from the cry of meaningless, meaningless, we should be saying, if only to ourselves, meaningful and hopeful as we work for the inbreaking of Christ's kingdom of shalom, the eternal kingdom of peace. There is a reminder that our hope is stronger than the despair we may detect and a spur to continue in discipleship and service. All of that sounds great, but what might that look like in real life? On this day, when we remember the civilian and military victims of officially recognised wars, when we are aware of continued violence and hostility, even on our own doorsteps, what might it mean to bring hope from despair? I'm not going to give you a deep theological sermon today. Rather, I'm going to share with you a story from my own experience, a situation in which the potential for despair was and continues to be transformed by hope. It isn't overtly a Christian story, although many Christians have been part of it. I like to think it's worth sharing. And I will put up my visual aid now, otherwise I will forget my little teddy bear. We've all got dates and times and places that stick in our minds for all sorts of reasons. One such date for me is Saturday the 20th of March 1993. 
Of course, at the time, I didn't know it was going to be a significant date. I had some friends staying with me. We got on the train and went from Warrington, where I lived, to Manchester to enjoy a day out at the Granada Studios tour. And we had a fantastic time. It was only at the end of the day, when we got on the train to go home, discovered it wasn't going to stop in Warrington, that we began to discover that something had happened that day. A date that I dare to suggest history will record as significant. Most of you won't know anything about Warrington. It's an industrial town in the northwest of England. It's got no strategic significance whatsoever, but sits close to some of the busiest arterial roads and railway networks in the UK. It's just off the M6, the M62 and the M56, a short hop from ferry ports to other nations. Although it is mostly English working class, it's also home to a significant Irish community. It's a town in which ecumenical relationships between Catholic and Protestant are really good. Two weeks prior to the events that were going to prove so significant, bombs had been planted at a gas works close to a densely populated council estate, perhaps a little bit like Pollock or Drum Chapel. Some of the perpetrators happened to be stopped by a local police officer for a traffic violation as they drove through the town to get away. And maybe that was significant in what happened next. On Saturday, the 20th of March, 1993, the day before Mother's Day, a coded warning was telephoned to the Samaritans in Liverpool, a city some 20, 30 miles away. And the police made a search of the area specified. Finding nothing, they contacted police in other towns and cities. The news arriving just as the first bomb detonated at 12.27 in the middle of Bridge Street in Warrington. As terrified shoppers began to flee, a second device exploded. One child, a three-year-old boy called Jonathan, lay dead. A 12-year-old called Tim would die five years later, sorry, five days later from his injuries. More than 50 people would be taken to hospital. Among them, a young mother called Bromwyn, who lost a leg, and who, within a year, had died from metastatic skin cancer, which her family continued to think may have been linked with the trauma of that day. At that point, she was in remission. Events in Warrington never made it to the headlines on the BBC News, Something happening in the former Soviet Union, which I've long since forgotten, was deemed more important. I don't know, but it's actually possible it wasn't even reported at all in Scotland because the BBC just didn't think it was that important at the time. Exactly a week on from the bombings, I joined with hundreds of other people in the town centre to observe one minute of silence in memory of those killed and injured. Just around the corner lay a sea of floral tributes from all over the United Kingdom, the Republic of Ireland and beyond. One sticks in my mind to this day, 
sorry, I'm just getting choked up here. And it says on it, from a mother in error. I'm sorry. A town I love in municipal mourning. People unable to make sense of the events. So easily despair could have flooded our collective psyche and destroyed hope. So easily bitterness and revenge could have taken root. It was difficult for a while for the Irish community, most of whom are Roman Catholics. But overall, there was a sense that enough was enough, that suspicion and hatred and revenge and violence were not the way forward, that what we needed wasn't retribution, but reconciliation. And within weeks, the first attempts were underway. An organisation called WIRE, the Warrington and Ireland Reconciliation Enterprise was formed. Wire was the name of the rugby team in, in Warrington at that time, so it was a bit of a play on words. This was formed and there were church leaders, there were local councillors and survivors of the bombing who walked, with the help of a ferry, it has to be said, from Warrington to Northern Ireland to begin that process. Right at the heart of the drive for reconciliation were the parents of Tim Parry, the 12-year-old who died as a result of his injuries. They travelled to meet Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, with whom they had open and frank conversations. They dreamed of establishing a centre in Warrington where young people from Britain and Ireland could meet together to learn with and from each other. They could have surrendered to despair They could have become bitter and angry. But they chose hope for something good to emerge. To me and to many who live in Warrington, there is no doubt that the events there and the response made were significant at a UK political level that led to the Good Friday Agreement. Now, I know that doesn't make everything right. I know everything is not roses in the garden. I know it's flawed and there are still things that go wrong from time to time. But hope was allowed to emerge from despair. One of the things that the town council wanted to do was to create a lasting memorial that expressed hope for the future. And perhaps rather surprisingly they chose a biblical image to inspire that. The river of life from Revelation. Twelve bronze plaques, one for each month of the year, were decorated with designs by local school children from various communities. And this central water feature bore the handprints of children and adults. For quite a long time, The town centre enjoyed new vitality. Children played in the fountains. People shopped and socialised where once there had been that moment of carnage. Times change and things move on. A nearby shopping centre has been extended and most of the retailers have moved from Bridge Street. But the memorial remains and apparently is now identified as a historical heritage site. The Peace Centre is now well-established, 
working with adults and children from many nations in areas of mediation, reconciliation and peacemaking. Overall, I think it's fair to say that 20 years on, the situation is far more hopeful than anyone might have imagined back then. Just uh, on that uh, image, some pictures from the Peace Centre website and a statement of, of what they see themselves as being about. That this is the home for the Foundation for Peace, the NSPCC and Warrington Youth Club. The charities share many common aims and goals and each in their own way work with vulnerable children, young people and adults affected by violence and cruelty in all its forms. The charities tackle many of the issues affecting society today. Prejudice, discrimination and violence within and between our communities. Collectively, we aim to inspire young people and adults to fulfil their true potential and encourage them to celebrate their achievements. For me, and for other people from Warrington or living in Warrington, it's important to remember the events of the 20th of March, 1993. It's also important to me to remember the 13th of March, 1996. Does anyone know what that one was? It was also just before Mother's Day. That was Dunblane, the 19th of March, 1996. Actually, Warrington Town Council sent a letter of condolence to the council in Dunblane. Also to remember the 15th of August, 1998, which was the Omer bombing. Other people will have other significant dates and places, perhaps 9-11, perhaps 7-7, perhaps something that never even made it to the news. But violence cannot be allowed to have the last word. Hope has got to be given permission to emerge from despair and peace has to remain the goal for which we strive. Remembrance Sunday is difficult for many people. For some, it brings back, as though it were yesterday, the heartbreaking memory of that dreaded telegram reporting a loved one missing or killed in action during two world wars. For some, it's really acute as they have relatives and friends currently serving in the armed forces and daily facing the reality of death and despair. For some, it's just desperately uncomfortable, either an archaic ritual or a bewildering commemoration of human inhumanity. But I'd like to suggest that for all of us, it is as important as it is complex. We mustn't ever become complacent and confuse an absence of declared war with peace. We must never stop hoping that peace is attainable no matter what the signs suggest. The scriptures we heard speak of a future hope, the assurance that Jesus has gone ahead and waits for our arrival. His metaphor of many mansions is a confusing one, confusing one, open to wide interpretation, but surely it oozes hope that in the end all will be safely gathered in, that there will be no more war, no more death, no more tears. Until that day, until that hope finds its ultimate realisation, we remember 
And in remembering, we choose to hope. And in hoping, we learn to live. Amen. We come with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. Living God, already this morning we have had an act of remembrance. We have heard voices from the First World War, the Second World War, and from those who experienced the horror of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We come now to remember the awful cost of war, to remember the millions who gave their lives for the cause of freedom, to remember the courage and heroism, fear and pain, tragedy and grief of so many. We are here to remember all of this and much more besides, those who still mourn the loss of loved ones, those who even now are blighted by war, those wounded in body, mind or spirit, those for whom warfare has meant life can never be the same again. And we remember also those who strive for peace, governments and world leaders, United Nations forces and diplomats, pressure groups and ordinary people, all who, in different ways, strive to promote harmony between the nations, giving victims of war the opportunity to live a normal life once more. Once again, we pray for the people of Syria and the many refugees spilling into the surrounding countries. We pray for all those involved in providing aid and support that they may have sufficient resources of personnel and provisions to ease the suffering of all who are in need. We realise that hopelessness and despair are not limited to war zones, and so we pray for all who have lost hope in their dreams and plans, their circumstances, or in life itself. We pray for those who despair of seeing freedom, justice, peace or reconciliation. Those who despair of finding adequate food and clothing. Those who despair of receiving help and healing. Living God, there is so much despair in our world and for many there seems little reason to hope. Reach out, we pray, to all those whose belief in the future has been destroyed and grant new dreams where old ones have died, rekindled purpose where confidence has been undermined and support when there seems to be nothing left to hold on to. As we think of those in trouble, we especially pray for those in the Philippines whose life has been thrown into turmoil by the typhoon that has ravaged their land. We pray for the families of those who have lost their lives, 
Give them comfort, support, and the knowledge of your eternal love. We pray for all those striving to give support amid the devastation, whether to body, mind, or soul. Equip them with compassion, wisdom, and skill in their work. Living God, we believe that you grieve and suffer wherever people are in need. Reach out then to those people in their sorrow and despair and grant them help to rebuild their shattered lives and hopes. Lord of all hopefulness, hear our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. We say together, Lead us from death to life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair to hope, from fear to trust. Lead us from hatred to love, lead us from war to peace. Let peace fill our hearts, our world, our universe. 